0: My name is Andrew McAllen. I'm a musician and athlete who geeks out on fashion, art, and great food. I spent time working with elite performers, repairing instruments for major symphony musicians, training for marathons, and designing wardrobes from everyone from freshman college students to big city lawyers. Trequartista is the Italian word for playmaker, and is used to describe a particularly creative role on the soccer pitch, typically behind the central striker. And as the musical trequartista. I aim to kickstart conversations about topics and areas that I think are underrated, under discussed, or particularly important to a sustainable, high octane life. This is the Musical Trek Artista, the podcast.
1: I'm I'm waiting. There it is. Got it. There we go.
0: Okay. Hiram, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. you were talking about um, music school accreditations.
1: Yes. So I talked to someone in the accrediting um, place. Uh, he, he no longer works for them. Uh, his name was Kyle Dobeck. But Kyle uh, talked me through how many euphonium majors there are in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's actually really hard to figure out because, you know, think about that for one school to figure out how many people are a major or a minor or a, mm-hmm. or a secondary mm-hmm. versus, uh, you know, in on, on any given instrument, yeah. not even euphonium. So what we did, uh, well, we talked about how many, how many schools are accredited and then how many schools are accredited with a concert band program.
2: Yeah. And then
1: how many schools are accredited with a low brass professor which which helped us nail it down. And you know, it's it ranges in this country from six hundred to a thousand. Whoa. Euphonium majors every year. That's which is awesome. A, it's a wild thought. It's a wild yeah. thought to place mentally like, okay, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> what yeah. does that mean to me? <laughs> you know, between major secondary because he didn't he didn't want to and couldn't distinguish between major education uh or oh, excuse me performance education minor and secondary he said yeah. you know it doesn't necessarily matter and as an accrediting institution that's not where their um that's not where their time and money is spent they're just yeah. if you do this we're going to do this for you or this is how you get this uh delineated yeah which is really interesting yeah. so yeah there are not that many euphonium majors in the in the united states that was my wife and this is my dog link
0: up oh. up 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 there's link oh hi link. link oh he looks like a sweetheart he's
1: a big good sweet dog oh. good boy
0: yeah he is a good boy you know, a, thou- a 600 to 1,000 is a, honestly a little more than I expected. It's a range.
1: Yeah. You know, it's a huge range. But if you think about it, um, these are people who not necessarily play the euphonium even full time. Yeah. And think about the people who do like music therapy. Yeah. Or the people who do. There's, you know, hundreds of music educators in Texas alone, yeah, getting their degrees that are not necessarily focused on the instrument as their as the be all end all. It's just a vehicle. That's true. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it's 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 wonderful that there are that many. But it's wild isn't it wild it is pretty wild well <laughs> and, and like you said i mean that's not even including like mm. tuba players who might play euphonium in an ensemble for a semester so like you nailed it you nailed it to exactly. to like round out their education as they pursue like teaching tuba and euphonium at a university um and uh just because we weren't recording it when i brought this up uh part of the impetus for this project was in going through 11 manuals of orchestration i was able to come up with about 2 to 3 pages of what the euphonium is and what it's for and the most extensive one was like a paragraph and a half in the cambridge manual of orchestration 2013 edition wild that's i awful. know i know That's <laughs> ridiculous one well, and, and like to make so matters we, to make worse we, we matters have a lot of worse, work to do we, we do have, a lot, have a lot of work to do well oh. the the really frustrating thing i found was like um they didn't even have great chapters on tuba like the sam adler study of orchestration yeah. which is like the one that yeah the big uses. one yeah yeah it's a, like <clears throat> it it talks about how like pedal e flat is the lowest note the tuba can really play and wagner didn't know what he was doing and those excerpts don't mean anything and i'm like hold up hold up hold up so so prokovia 5 <laughs> and, and meister singer are out already and are by a landslide probably the most practiced absorption for the horn, except maybe like rides.
1: These, these are really okay. So these are these are great questions, and I think this discussion will lead to um a lot of questioning of what is usable, what is mm-hmm. feasible, what is feasible, and what is usable. Yeah. Uh, you and I both know very well there are some outrageous players out there. Yes. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> outrageous players who can do outrageous things yeah. on the tuba and the euphonium. And that's exciting. Yes. And that's wonderful. And I want to use this opportunity to talk to you about what those capabilities are and the reasons we do them mm-hmm. and, if they're one sustainable, we're talking about extended technique and range here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One sustainable, two practical, and three musical. Mm-hmm. Um, sustainable in a sense that is it healthy, is it healthy to play down? The the cello mm-hmm. and the violin, any string instrument does what it it says onto it says do this. Yeah. We have our limits. The clarinet, any wind instrument or w- w- woodwind instrument, says we do this. Maybe s- uh, saxophones and their um, um, what's the altissimo register? This, yeah. the I forget what that register is called. Uh, maybe that's extended technique, but many of them can do it, and it doesn't um, impact the physicality of their body. You know. Yeah. Um, but on brass instruments. <clears throat> here's the here's the whole rub is yeah some people can do that but hey man is that gonna tear the instrument apart from Mm -hmm. its root Mm because let me give you an example pick a famous composer
0: go ahead charles ives
1: Uh, a living famous composer
0: John Mackey. And
1: let's say John Mackey gets a hold of a random guy who can play quadruple F above the piano. Mm -hmm. And he does it all day. And he says, well, why don't the euphonium players do this? And that person says, I don't know. Um, Well, what does that do to the euphonium? And I know... I am looking at myself in the face, saying these things. Uh, so recently, <laughs> well, I want I want to let you lead this conversation, but there are well, things I do want to talk about. Um, oh, for sure, man. I want to make sure I have my my book here that I that I co wrote, quote unquote, um, uh, to discuss these extended ranges. So sure. yeah go ahead what where are we going with this
0: sweet so um basically the the way I've kind of distilled it I'm gonna pull up my list really quick I've um one of the things I really wanted to do was line item good roles for the euphonium in the wind ensemble like right away in in outlining the basically extra chapter of the orchestration textbook that I'm planning to write um fantastic one of these um I actually took a lot of inspiration from you from has I think it was at um, the Eastman Tuba Acad- the East Academy where you, I think you used the phrase euphonium is the chameleon of the band. Yes. What, I, what I've, I've changed it a tiny bit and I've used it as um, I've, I've said to boost the volume of another instrument by pairing in octaves or unison. Um, and I've thought of it as kind of like um, if you think about an audio technician, like the gain boost dial. Sure. That's a, that's, that's a
1: wonderful um approach because if I were to if I were to think about that you would say mm-hmm. here is a color that mm-hmm. won't detract yeah from the color of your bassoons or your low reeds right yeah, absolutely it'll it, it it'll sound like uh it's a great way to think about that it'll sound like we're adding the bass booster to it or we're adding yeah. Thickness to the texture. Yeah. And a lot of composers and a lot of orchestrators have used it as such. You'll find that in Donald mm-hmm. Hunsberger's arrangements. Yeah. In the Star Wars and in the, um, uh, what's the uh, excerpt that we play? Festive Overture, mm-hmm. that the arrangement that he did. And that's a great way to think of it. It's, yeah. it's certainly as we look at it as a doubling instrument. Yes. Which is where you're going with that. So that... I, I I would agree wholeheartedly with that um, assessment of the euphonium. Mm-hmm. As a chameleon, yeah, one, one aspect, let's talk about yeah. it as an aspect, is that we are boosting the sound of that of that section.
0: Yeah. The... Without detracting or adding a different, a radically different color. <clears throat> exactly. Um, The next is a solo line that will cut through the ensemble regardless of the quantity of instruments playing if the euphonium is scored uh, in an upper register, and that's lyrical or agile solos. Mm. One that comes to mind specifically is Colonial Song with how thick the band is scored, but yet it's so present, especially near the end. It can be, yes.
1: Yes. And that's a little more into the weeds as we, you know, that's a little more. Okay. And, and I would agree with that assessment as well, because, you know, and it, and it depends on the player and it depends on the color that you're using. So if you play with a whole lot of vibrato, yeah, you're going to come on out, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, that, that is a weapon that we can. <laughs> that's a terrible word to use, right? Yeah. But that's a that's a weapon that we can wield is the song nature of the and the and the vocal aspect of the euphonium, just mm-hmm. popping out of the st- texture with the vibrato, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's a. Again, I agree with that assessment as well as another aspect, another aspect of the euphonium's uh chameleon-like nature. These are good. Mm-hmm. These are good. This is a really good way to f- spell out a word into mm-hmm. um into these different aspects. No, I like it, Andrew. Yeah. That's good. I like uh,
0: it. Creating a counter melody in an already thick texture is next. And a lot of the Sousa counter melody lines specifically what I, was what I was thinking of, which actually gets to a bit of an interesting point I've been, uh, having with a couple of the, uh, just a couple of my friends that I've been talking through the project with, um, cause full disclosure, haven't told a ton of people about this, <laughs> right. um, but, uh, at least not yet, but, um, one of the things that I've been kind of frustrated by is seeing the real push to get people who have primarily operated in orchestral medium into writing for band, but I'm finding in some of these folks that I've been speaking to. The rep that they've studied is the band rep that looks like orchestral rep rather than necessarily the pillars of the band repertoire. And I think the issue Mm. I particularly take with that is I don't know that you get a really well-rounded idea of what the instruments that are more exclusive to band are really good at. And Mm. I'm going to pose, I'm going to pose a question to you. Go ahead. Um, what do you think is the most performed work for band today? I don't actually know. I just have a really good guess.
1: <clears throat> well, I couldn't tell you. I My, think that I think that I'm in a in a unique situation where yeah. um I play professionally.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I pl- I play what the people want to hear. Yeah. I think that's what um is being programmed. I'm not necessarily yeah. I'm not the one that programs these things. Yeah. And I'm also not the one who makes any of these decisions.
0: Yeah. So the no I, question I wanna, yeah. I want to assure you this isn't a trick question. Oh, no, uh, no, no. My my assessment, and I, I think this care. is a very good assessment, is- I that- could care less because <laughs> because I'm gainfully employed as a professional <laughs>
1: euphonium player. So my my opinion is going to be what my opinion is. And yeah. if it's wrong, then it's wrong. And
0: <laughs> yeah, c'est um, la vie. <clears throat> my, my assessment is uh, Stars and Stripes is probably the most performed piece for band. Well, I was going to go there. I, I, I was wondering if you were looking for uh, symphonic work or popular work. Oh, I was thinking works across the board. My But my assessment is that. I mean, if nothing else, the fact that it's on so many, like it's every military band concert and probably almost every 4th of July concert in a year. I mean, the, the numbers would speak for themselves.
1: <laughs> and, and you have to realize that to add to your, to your, to your um, assessment, or to mm-hmm. add to your argument, because I think it's a decent argument that all of the military bands go on tour, yes, all over the United States every single year, and mm-hmm. every single one of those concerts. So, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Coast Guard.
0: Yeah, and not to mention all the base bands, all the National Guard bands, all the community bands. <laughs> Like anybody who plays a 4th of July gig is probably playing Stars and Stripes forever. I I doubt you're wrong. I doubt you're wrong. So this begs a serious question, though, because I don't think I could name an orchestral composer who would study Stars and Stripes if they were commissioned to write their first piece for a band. And I think that's actually kind of a problem. Huh. Well, let me push back. There's
1: nothing... Um, creative about Stars and Stripes in a formulaic sense. If if you wanted to study marches,
2: mm-hmm.
1: then you're studying French marches, Russian marches, English marches, Italian marches, and mm-hmm. the structures they're from. Yes. And what Sousa did was create an American march structure. He took a lot from those countries, mm-hmm. right? He took a lot from French march style. He took a lot from English march style and Italian march style. A Mm -hmm. lot, especially with the melodic content in uh, Italian marches. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, And those are like police bands or municipal bands and and the Carponchielli and uh, French marches. I couldn't name you a single composer, but... Um, if this were to be published, I don't want to make an ass of myself because I don't know any French march composers. But mm-hmm. there you go. I mean, you know, let's say yeah. Arban Arban wrote a French march. I bet he did. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, I don't know that composers would gain anything other than listening to the structure of it and the and the melodic uh, content. What they are missing. Yeah. And I I've talked to you about this before is I don't think marches are classical music.
0: Yeah. And I, I kind of agree with, I actually, I do agree with that. I don't kind of agree with that. I do agree Uh with that. The point I would make is, um, and as someone who's studied composition, this is something I think about, I find that it's really important to look at, uh, works to see how particular instruments are handled. And if that piece is programmed a lot, that tells mm. me a lot about what that instrument is capable of.
1: And yeah. if, and I, and if in someone the...
0: was to study exclusively, um, like the, uh, I'm having a hard time coming up with like a not so great euphonium part right now. Cause well, for, cause in not... the prep, in the prep, so, I looked at so Andrew, many good euphonium parts. Andrew, just, um, just, yeah.
1: just, just don't do that because okay. those composers, yeah. for sure. Um, yeah. Th- those people might be, um, uh, uh,
0: For sure, Uh, yeah. I guess guess the 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 point I'd argue is like um, a a piece that just scores the euphonium in octaves Mm -hmm. with the tuba as exclusively the device that it's used for, as opposed to one of the many devices it's incredibly effective effective at. I think is a bit not only frustrating for us. I think it's a bit derivative to the medium because. I think one of right. I, I I was very fortunate very recently. Um, I was playing for the University of Illinois Conducting Symposium. And the two pieces we really played for that were Linga Traposi and Chester. And one of the things I was really struck by is how involved the euphonium is in those two pieces in a variety of ways. And even if it's not, it doesn't seem like the most flashy or the most all over the place kind of thing, the you, parts you guys were them with-
1: Did you guys play the whole New England triptych or just Chester?
0: Just Chester. It was just for, uh, I mean, it was just a conducting symposium. So they wanted to keep the rep a little more limited. Mm -hmm. Um, At least that's my understanding. Um, But I mean, between um, movements uh, two, four, and five, and six of Lincoln Posey, I mean, like the euphonium is all over the place doing all kinds of stuff. And uh, and part of this is also informed by... um, the advanced orchestration class I took last year where we learned to write for orchestra in, in a bit of a m- musicological way rather than the, a more traditional orchestration class. And the presumption was also that like you'd taken basic orchestration before. So nobody really needed to go over like how does the clarinet work and what are its bad registers and stuff like that. We were able to go, okay, here's a Bach cantata, orchestrate this the way Bach would have orchestrated it great now that you've done that here's a piece by Haydn orchestrate this the way Haydn would have orchestrated it okay. and so on and so forth and one of the things okay. I really was able to learn from that is like the evolution of the orchestral medium and understand like oh this is why you have to handle the strings in this way this is why you have to handle the winds in this way Uh huh. and I don't think that people that are approaching writing for band if they haven't played in band for very much of their life really understand that kind of, um, aspect to the medium, I guess.
1: Okay. I mean, yeah. I, I see the reason why you're doing this, that, and I, I completely understand it. And, um, I absolutely see, uh, so I absolutely see what you're talking about with new composers too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I there was actually a composer at uh, the Midwest Band and Orchestra Clinic. Well, let's not do that. Let's. It's a composer that I've worked with in the past who wrote not a very exciting euphonium part with quite an exciting piece of music, mm-hmm. and I discussed with them. I said, "Hey, here's I sent them." A concerto just so they could see our our technical capabilities but you're absolutely right this is something that we deal with mm-hmm. we deal with having to re-explain exactly what we're capable of constantly
0: yeah
1: constantly and uh unless they're educated or unless they're aware it's a it's mm-hmm it's a, uh, and they're, and they have to be educated in a very particular way, which is the point that you're making.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, I don't think it's very inclusive, especially given the posture of a lot of universities right now. Um, if you programs are going to continue to teach orchestration a way a lot of them do, which is geared primarily towards orchestral and chamber music. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I feel very blessed to be attending a program that is happens to house the oldest university band program. And I know of two composers on campus who write for band anywhere remotely regularly. And I think I can name three that have ever, which is nuts, (laughs) especially given the strength of the program and the capabilities of the ensemble. So my hope is yeah. I mean, like, like yeah. So my, so my my hope is that in um, in making the resources more accessible, um, showing how enthusiastic the tuba euphonium right. community is, um, I, the the analogy I would make is that there are a lot of euphonium players that remind me of a lot of Chicago Cubs fans. Even when the situation's not great, they still show up. <laughs> yeah. Right, 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 right and i say that right. i say that with admiration right. <laughs> <laughs> i think cuz i think the chicago cubs fan base is unbelievable, unbelievable. especially given the situations they've been in
1: <laughs> yeah so the necessity is there yeah I mean, to beat a dead horse the necessity is there for things like this to 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 show people what we're capable of and the, the musicality that the euphonium is capable of and mm-hmm. i think it's important that we do things like this so very cool. good no
0: awesome so um i have a stack of pieces that i kind of wanted to go through um well I, I i guess the question is how did you want to do this uh i did some pretty in-depth prep about um pieces that i thought were exemplary of what we could do um i have okay. them divided by x ex- uh concerti excerpts and solos okay and then i have a uh a, a line item list of extended techniques that I personally use on a regular basis okay um that we could go through
1: um <laughs> okay so so, so so here's um <clears throat> my question to you is mm-hmm. well no no question Let, let's just like I, I'd rather hear from you how you, let's just hear the concerto, that you want to talk about. And I, and maybe if I, if I want to add anything to that, sure. I can add something to that. But so what, what, before, before we move on, mm-hmm. um, I think it's really important to te- talk about the role of the euphonium in the concert band sure. uh, to finish up what you're saying, you know, yeah, the euphonium in the concert band. I, I really want to, I'm glad I remember this. The euphonium is the tenor soloist of the concert band. Yes. The tenor soloist of the concert band. Now, we have plenty of soprano and alto soloists. What are our soprano solos of the concert band? Oboe? Flute? cornet slash trumpet? Kind uh, of? Yeah, I want to call that mezzo-soprano. Okay. They don't really... They can and absolutely do play much higher than a mezzo per, per soprano's range. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about soprano soprano, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, um lyric, lyric soprano. Very, to very say high. clarinet
0: is a lyric soprano. Yes.
1: Yeah. Lyric soprano, we're talking like flute and mm-hmm. oboe and clarinet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then our like mezzo soprano range, where really singing. Is also clarinet, but very much trumpet and alto saxophone. Yeah. And then we have our alto range, which we can also give to the bassoon and the English horn and the alto saxophone and the tenor saxophone and still a little bit of the cornet. But the tenor soloist, the vocal approach, Well, the reason I use the word tenor is the vocal nature of these things. Yeah. Because... A trombone, I might get into trouble here, but it's not a, a is it is an instrument of direction and power and a lot of chordal support. Mm-hmm. A trombone solo is always a very unique sound.
2: Yeah. The
1: euphonium solo fits directly and in line with any sort of uh composition. There's no change in a euphonium solo doesn't require the listener to take a leap of the oral information. A trombone solo, you want to play a lyrical trombone solo, they're going to have to be like, huh, that's a lyrical trombone solo, I guess. Yeah. But the euphonium solo is the tenor voice, the tenor sound, the tenor singer <laughs> of the band. Beautiful vibrato, beautiful range. It's that... I would say D in the bass clef staff to A flat or high B flat which mm-hmm. is a very tenor range. Yes. And that's where the best of our tenor solos are written. I agree. Let's name one. Whole Second Suite. Yes. All's First Suite. Let's name others that aren't that that early. The Schoenberg theme and variations. Yes. Very much in that box. Mm-hmm. Um uh, a lot of our a lot of our music that's written that has a soloistic sound. Yeah. Much of
0: Lincolnshire Posy, like we were all talking of the before. David Maslanka euphonium excerpts are Mas- there. Very, very good. That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, like more the, the the Fifth Symphony, like has a euphonium concerto in it. <laughs>
1: I think that because of the the vibration and the range and the way the instrument lends itself to vocal music,
0: mm-hmm. it
1: becomes the tenor soloist of the band with volume over the bassoon and over the tenor saxophone. Yeah, with agree. range over the vo- over the tenor saxophone and over the bassoon. With character of vibrato and and brass instrument sound over a woodwind mm-hmm. instrument not to say that these instruments are any less or contribute in any less way. They just yeah. play different roles. And so the euphonium plays this role very well in the concert band. I agree. Which is where we need to, this is the part of of, of music that irks me sometimes. There's a lot of modern composition that utilizes the euphonium as you were saying, as the upper octave of the tuba. And that's Mm -hmm. all well and good, but it takes no adventure from there. There's so much you'll hear in much modern composition, trombone solos, trumpet solos, French horn solos, and none for the euphonium because they don't understand the lyric quality of the euphonium. And there's so much lyric quality in the euphonium yeah. that modern composers aren't listening for or yeah. not aware of. And that's, that's where I think this chameleon of the band thing is very, very good because we genuinely have to play so many different roles in support. But we also are such an incredible soloistic instrument.
0: Yeah,
1: That's the main thing that I would drive home. Yes. Is that we can solo so daggum well
0: I agree. All, these,
1: all of these theme and variation solos, even in front of the band, we, besides being with um, within the band, outside of the band. Um, and this is what we're about to go over. You're right.
0: Yeah. And one of the things <clears throat> I also wanted to touch on is like, it's really interesting how in the early band more symphonic works a piece like link at comes to mind where we have you a distinct euphonium one and euphonium two part where oh. they they split the role so much in a really interesting way where it's really really effective
1: well do you know the history of that uh of that particular piece no of the fact that uh, baritone and euphonium or euphonium one and euphonium two are you aware of what that means?
0: Um, I'm happy to be enlightened. All right.
1: Way back in the day, <clears throat> there used to be concert bands with alto horns, so E-flat tenor horns. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh man, baritones, tubas, E-flat tubas, B-flat tubas, so bass tubas and contrabass tubas, valve trombones. It was a smorgasbord. 120 years ago, there were lots of different brass instruments painting lots of different brass colors. Mm -hmm. Composers simply got tired of it. And there was a meeting. There was actually a meeting that took place. And Mark Jenkins is better uh, suited to tell you about this. But I can tell you off the top of my head that there was a meeting that took place about 120 years ago, 100 plus years ago, about the euphonium.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that these two instruments could play in the same ranges and they sounded fairly similar. <clears throat> so, composers did away with the baritone. There used to be a euphonium that played the octa- upper octave of the tuba most often, and a baritone that played a lot of the tenor and lyrical solos that you would play, you would pair with the tenor saxophone, with the bassoon. Mm-hmm. with the cornet with the bottom octave of the cornet that's what you would do you would pair that yeah. and over time excuse me not over time there was an actual decision made to coalesce those parts that's wow. why you have these um these additions of a lot of that music that put those two parts together and then they because those two parts are put together the the arrangers or the people who set a lot of this music had to put the a lot of that harmony and instrumentation into other instruments it spilled over into the bassoons it spilled over into the um, horns. spilled over into the saxophones spilled over into the euphoniums and trombones there's a lot of middle voice issues Mm -hmm. middle voices is where this affected the most so there used to be absolutely two separate instruments then people then as manufacturers started pushing um, the process forward it started to get a little murky. We do absolutely recognize a baritone, and we do absolutely recognize a euphonium. But yeah. manufacturers said, "I don't know." Like Con, Con mm-hmm. said, "We don't care." Yeah, they both. You know, we the parts are not that they said we don't care, but this is what we're going to make. We're going to make a a double bell euphonium or a five valve uh, five valve double bell euphonium. Uh, we're going to make one horn. We're going to call it a baritone, maybe. Well, in some publications and things started to change. So the history is a little murky when it comes to those parts. Yeah. Uh, so, so really, truly, you're right that there were split parts for a lot of things. And that's still possible. I think it's still... Yeah. There's plenty of music that's written that way. A lot of the uh, European um, uh, fanfare bands and yeah. uh, the European... I mean, there's uh,
0: European art music that's that way. Harmony, a, yeah. A, a, a piece in my lineup for this interview is Poem du Fue by Ida Goukowski. I don't know if that's a piece you know. It's actually written for three parts of Euphonium. Yeah, I just played it. Oh, in no the way. <laughs> yeah. I, we're playing it on uh, our concert here with the Wind Symphony uh, next mm. week and then uh, on tour in Naperville tomorrow. Very cool. Yeah, I piece just played nuts. it. That piece is nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. really cool. It's really cool. <laughs> so, uh, yeah,
1: that history is a little more involved than just changing the nomenclature. The, sure. the, ba- the band composers got together and said, just change that shit. We do mm. not want to be writing that many parts yeah or that few that little a tone quality difference which is what mm-hmm. really i think that's what really happened mm-hmm. at any rate um let's go down the r- hole can you make me a share screen capability here
0: oh yeah sure i i'm old world and like actually have the sheet music for everything
1: okay <laughs> but i want to share you yeah the 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 thing that, that I have started to do. Can I share? Um, host you disabled. should have. I th- oh, let's try it again. Does it say... No, it says host disabled participant screen sharing. Um. <clears throat> there we go. Thank you. Cool. You just did it. Awesome. Uh, it doesn't matter. I'm not sharing any videos. So, you got me here, right? Yep. Okay. This is the Phil Snedeker Youth that I was... Um, instrumental in creating Phil Snedeker, uh, for those that aren't aware, has written a bunch of brass music. He's a fantastic arranger. He he started, I don't know if he founded, but he was one of the founding members of the Washington Symphonic Brass with Milt Stevens, and he took it over and runs the Washington Symphonic Brass. His incredible arranging chops. I love Phil. And at a bar one night, Phil and I got to talking about euphonium literature. Okay, mm-hmm. and how we don't have etudes that address our incredible solo literature and yeah. orchestral and concert band and uh, the ranges and the capabilities of the euphonium. So we'll start here with the 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 reason I put this as the first. I he let me choose the order, which was fantastic. This first etude, um, etude one, is. I want you to notice first how perfectly singing register euphonium stuff that is, you know. Yeah. That is very singing euphonium register. And as we move on, still very singing euphonium register. And here we are, measure 31. There you go. Yeah,
0: let's we'll see. That's
1: that is euphonium 101, especially in our concertos. Is yeah. playing technically in the compensating register. So here at measure 31 32 boom all of these all of this writing is completely within the realm of euphonium's capabilities mm-hmm. and I asked for all of these things because I knew this is uh, this is just a joke but I knew that this is this is what we write this is what we play beautiful mm-hmm. singularity here in our second etude but okay here um uh, let's go here at measure you can, are you seeing this well Yes. Okay. So here are measure 26 and 27 and 28. Okay. What do we see here? We see an extreme pedal register. Yes. Okay. Bum, ba, da, 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 dee, dum. Um, do you know, you know, you're a euphonium player of music mm-hmm. that goes this low?
0: In euphonium? In euphonium. Uh, the only two things that come to mind are very briefly in the link along Cosmo Concerti.
1: The Cosma Concerto and the Linkola Concerto, and there are other concertos that go down to here <clears throat> the Gabrielle Filippo Euphonium Concerto. Um, we, we play this music
2: mm-hmm.
1: at an extremely high level,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's why I asked for this. When we and our bet, one of our best concertos, the Cosma Euphonium Concerto,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um. The quality of the composition, the melodic nature of it, the way it lends itself to the euphonium so well, mm-hmm. this is why we play it. It's fantastic. It's dramatic. It's well-written. It has uh, super tuneful and memorable melodies. Yeah. We, as a community, revere the Cosmo Euphonium Concerto. And yes. are all of these notes within that? The answer is Yes. Mm-hmm. the answer is yes and that's why i asked him to write this music you know yeah. down here at the last measure this is what we do okay and as we move on here this this is part of the reason i got these youth dudes, uh written is because this is the stuff that we do i want to go to i want to go to uh the stuff that he wrote for us that's orchestral transcriptions ah the other thing that we do here we are, euphonium a two number eight. Look at this beautiful key, F major. And then what do we have here? And I asked for this specifically. Was oh, tenor clef. Tenor clef. Very good. Yes. And a lot of our music is written in that in that clef.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: addressing the stuff that we do as euphonium players. Here we are. Do you recognize this as a euphonium player? I'll give you a hint um Titania is a moon okay mm-hmm. of Mars I think or of Jupiter I think it's of
0: a... no I might... I, I can't remember if it's one of the two it's Jupiter yeah so here's because Mars only has two moons
1: okay so here is so this figure that we're looking at actually occurs in our orchestral repertoire pagara ba ba Bye, all that, two, three. A- so even in these ranges, this occurs in the planets by Gustav Holz. Here it is written directly for us.
0: That occurs in the planets. That is written for us in the planets. That's in around us, isn't it?
1: Yes, that's correct. Um here's Sancho Panza from um uh, uh from Strauss's uh Don Quixote. This is a riff on that. And then bodym body. All that stuff is from from um the planet. Uh excuse me, it's from Strauss. This yeah. here we go. This is very much from Mars Mar- Mars. Very good. And then back, I skipped uh a two number four, A two four. this is from the Lord's sins, O Magnum mysterium. right yes, here' a two number four. A two number five is different. At any rate, um, I've convinced the composer to write stuff that we have. Mostly, this extends into the low range. Um, mm-hmm. and we, we saw that earlier.
0: But There's a here, lot of high register stuff too.
1: I was going to go to the end to show you uh, the end. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> Rich but
1: Here we are. Here we are a tribute to Rich Madison, wh- who had an, 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 an absolutely fantabulous high range, but yeah. also a great low range. You know. Yeah. And here we are in the exceptions. This is not the rule, but here we are high F. And we also have F, F, E flat, F, G flat. There you go. There's the highest note right there. in the entire in the entire um etude book and it's possible and it's not impossible it's difficult Mm -hmm. but this is stuff that i have seen in our repertoire every single note i have seen in our repertoire Mm -hmm. composed by serious composers Mm -hmm. not a single one of them are are um not a single one of these notes, and not a single one of the reference points that I used were bullshit. Mm-hmm. To 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 be crass, yeah. Um, none of this was was from like, oh, you know what? Why don't you write a double a double F, like a quadruple F or something? Yeah. Right in some just because I'm, I'm a jerk. Not a yeah. not a one of these notes yeah. have I not seen before?
0: Ah, I've, Refer- I've seen a lot of them before. Exactly. <laughs> I mean there's there's E flats below that, like just maybe like that minor third below that uh high G high G flat in Panama.
1: Very good. And that's just a simple that's a and that's just that's a, that's a, a, a gimme
0: concert piece. Yeah. That's a
1: yeah, that's a gimme. Exactly. That's a really good point, Andrew. Is yeah, that yeah, and I mean here's, there's, a, here's a gimme. And that is yeah. that is an extreme register note for many instruments, but not the euphonium. Yeah. Which is a great point to make. Mm-hmm okay
0: yeah How sus? i guess this is a really good time to ask like how sustainable do you think it is to write those like in that kind of a register in band music though
1: well that's why the preface of this uh talks a lot about our solo literature mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you know the extreme register stuff i don't i don't believe yeah. it's sustainable to write in extreme registers for the euphonium yeah uh for concert band music and i don't think anyone okay so that's a great question because I, it it deals I have, all...
0: yeah i i have two examples that i pulled for kind of extreme register and i pulled them because they appeared on recent military band auditions mm. um, the ones that come to mind are storm from 4c interludes and a festival overture because both of them have high d flats and high e flats in the parts And those are exceptions to the rules, right mm-hmm. and and this so, gives, and and I should add both pieces are phenomenal
2: <laughs> yeah yeah that's a great, that's i should also, i
0: should I should add that
1: <laughs> that's that is a great uh point because people want to play these pieces of music yes so as a euphonium player. I would be telling composers to write us in three octaves Mm -hmm. without hesitation and then in four octaves in extreme cases. So above high B flat, I know I'm a wuss, but above high B flat, you have to have Mm -hmm. a really good reason. And below pedal B flat, you have to have a really good reason. Now, Mm -hmm. can I comfortably play above high B flat? Every single day. Can I comfortably play below pedal B flat? It's been years since I couldn't, you know, very comfortably above and below those ranges. Mm -hmm. And where does the euphonium sound best is in those ranges. Yeah. That as composers, the, the recommendation you really want to make is if you have melodic material, you want to write between our, F in the staff and high B flat or high C. Yeah. If you want to write accompanimental material, you can write in any one of those notes. We're gonna play rather loud. Uh, we're gonna play rather loud when it comes past uh, high F. It's gonna be very present. Yeah. And then, um, but we'll do we'll do an exemplary job uh, mm-hmm. below middle B flat and down to low E flat, low D yeah so these are these are things that composers don't consider necessarily, yeah color and texture
0: that's and that's one of the big things I wanted to include. One of the things I really like about the Adler is in every chapter you like page one, you get the ranges and a description of what each range is like as far as the quality of the sound mm. and I thought having a diagram like that would be we don't incredible. have one in the Adler no.
1: Well, to make one. Gets
0: one that's yeah one. that's the that's the plan no.
1: um dude that's that's a great plan let's where do you want to go let's let's discuss that in particular right now i cool. want to know that
0: do cool. that um so what's yeah like go like qualities of the different registers yes cool um so i guess let's start with uh the harmonic series and work up so in One of the things I find that's a little frustrating about the pedal register, and I don't know, I've kind of started to think a little differently about this. I've wondered if the pedal register is louder than I think it is because some of the resonance is below the threshold of human hearing. I've wondered that for tuba also.
1: I couldn't talk about that in any meaningful way. Other other than that, I understand what you're saying, Hmm. but I don't know that I would be able to discern sure. like, and it also has to do with how many valves you're pushing down. And yeah. it also has to do with what part of the horn you're playing. And it also yeah. has to do with equipment.
0: Yeah. You know, the, I guess, um, one of the things i found this particular year, um, to the, we played, um, uh, Chen Yi's ye's Dragon Rhyme this year in the wind symphony. Okay. And there's a lot of parts in that piece where we're playing C um, on two lines below the bass clef. Okay. And for the fortissimo dynamic written, and maybe this is just my perception. I didn't find that I was able to put out a, a truly high quality fortissimo sound with, inside of an ensemble. And so... Um, at that kind of a range, I'm, I'm wondering if that's as effective as writing the C, the octave above.
1: The, the question for the composer is what is Mm. the desired effect?
0: Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the realm I've gotten to also, because I mean, I could see the value of like (laughs) doubling the bass trombone at that octave, um, and doubling with the tubas at that octave to have a little more punch in the sound by just quantity of musicians. And that's kind of my assumption. Right uh that's a good assumption right yeah yeah and i think the i i really like uh your tenacity to and your desire to express that the euphonium sound um vocally i think that's a really wise way to to describe it and one of the things i would find about the low or i would say about the low register is that while it's not necessarily a bass voice it is an exceptional low baritone voice in that octave oh yeah Uh, one of one of the comparisons i i've started to make recently was um i don't know if you were there for this conversation at eastman the year i was there um eastman tuba academy i should specify Mm -hmm. uh dr robinson and i were talking about how the patents for the modern euphoniums that we're using are much more akin to the baritone sax horns than they are um the central european rotary baritones and tenor tubas and so with that kind of idea in mind the euphonium can kind of do a lot of the things that the alto tenor and Barry sax can but rolled into one instrument which is kind of special
1: and Especially with mon- modern manufacturing and the, uh, the the liveness of the sound, the liveliness yes. of the sound. I don't know if you've ever played a French C-tuba or a historical instrument. Have you ever played mm-hmm. a Civil War baritone?
0: Yeah, I have. Uh, I, know, I mean, I've, I'm very blessed to um, spend a lot of my time. My office is two doors down from the John Philip Sousa uh-huh. archives.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so basically... Things have gotten better. Uh, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) So that is easily said and meaning we're going to have so much more resonance in, in a, in a modern brass instrument, especially the euphonium. Uh, There's so much range capability. So very much resonant sound happening in the ranges that are extreme, mm-hmm. uh, our extreme registers. Now, you know, for me, um, for me, my extreme register starts below pedal E and starts above a D, mm-hmm. you know, a, a high D and then we're like, okay, now we're going to start doing some weird stuff. And it, and I really do think it lends it's because of the manufacturing process. Now they're yeah. just hyper resonant sounds with really great core, you know, core tone qualities you know that with that being said it's like is the compositional process lending itself to this versus what we thought what they thought we were capable of Mm -hmm. and uh, again going back to uh, the point of this conversation is like Mm -hmm. we can play in a big melodic Range melodic, very technically the same technical prowess that you would give to a uh, tenor saxophone. I shouldn't say that. The same technical prowess that you can give to a cornet. Yeah, and you add I mean, another octave to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it would be reasonable to say, and maybe not necessarily exactly the same as it. Tennis saxophonist, but like approaching the technical prowess. Well, of a, I mean, the, there, there are some wild the, cats the, out there, but <laughs> well, the problem is arpeggiation.
1: Yeah, we can we can simply not arpeggiate like a wind, a woodwind instrument. That's true. that would be that's false. We, mm-hmm. we, we can't, we cannot, um, play the Mozart clarinet concerto cleanly down an octave.
2: Yeah,
1: we have, there's a lot of business that happens between the air and muscle and vibration mm-hmm. that we have to take care of. Whereas the clarinet does a lot more through um air pressure through the reed. Yes. Uh, we we simply cannot compete. That's true. A, a clarinet or a tenor saxophone, arpeggiation in any meaningful way. So thirds, uh major arpeggios, Diminished arpeggios are okay, but any sort of skipping of of said arpeggio is going to be extremely rough sounding. I'll give you an example. I am premiering a euphonium concerto out in Oregon. Oh, wow. week after awesome. week after uh, in in three weeks. uh The composer is a band director. Dennis Inas is a it's a Cuban euphonium concerto. Oh so
2: awesome. at the end of
1: at the end of this week I'm playing the day concerto with the marine band. Oh my god. Heck
0: That's and awesome. And then
1: and then in a couple more weeks I'm playing I'm premiering this concerto. <clears throat> Everything is good. Everything he wrote here is stepwise difficult it's a difficult part when it's not stepwise there is articulation brass centric right Mm -hmm. um and then i'm gonna find you the one lick that i asked for like a jackass (laughs) that is the most difficult lick that he wrote with woodwinds in mind and i fully admit to making this faux pas everything else is playable but this is not so this is at quarter note equal or excuse me half note equals 160 <laughs> so this measure right here yes yeah, brutal brutal <laughs> brutal is the way to say that but also it's, you can also, you can also call that bad brass writing mm-hmm Brass players should not and cannot do that. It's not clean. It won't sound good and healthy. Can we do almost everything else there? Look at all that stepwise motion. It'll sound great. It'll sound great on a brass instrument. Scales. Except for at at 160. This will sound a mess. I have to make this up. I'm gonna to have to do, do a lot of hard work. I am doing a lot of hard work just to make it up, but yeah. I asked for it. It's self-inflicted. Everything else, everything else, every single part of this concerto is fantabulous, except for the part that I asked for, because I, I heard it and I said, let the euphonium play that. I'll make it up. I want to, I want to try that. But it's no, not so. it's not idiomatic to the instrument. Yeah. And that's that's the operative word here, right? is it idiomatic to play um arpeggiation like that like a woodwind instrument and the answer is no not at all man yeah
0: the the advice i was going to give um future composers um with that kind of stuff is make sure you get your performers okay before you write (laughs) it because one of the things i've really found is that like writing especially new works for premiere and collaboration is incredibly underrated I think it's it's some of the most fun I have I love how I get to know the composer over the process and the piece always lays better on the horn as a result right <clears throat> and it's fun so at any rate
1: brass writing when it's idiomatic is often stepwise and, and very, if it's a fast passage, it's often stepwise. Mm-hmm. If it's not stepwise, it's, it's likely articulated. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, um, stepwise and articulated, then it's slower so that we can play it more beautifully.
0: Yeah. The, one of the parts that I had pulled that breaks that rule a lot, um, uh, maybe not as bad. It's very skippy um is this passage here um the tempo is 138.
1: oh uh, yes this is year of the dragon
0: it is year of the dragon
1: <laughs> so this brings up an interesting point is mm-hmm. that concert band music
0: yes This is the concert band version.
1: Is it concert band music? Answer that question again.
0: (laughs) The answer is... It's originally brass band music. Very good. Um, And the euphonium player
1: in brass band music is very cool. Absolutely incredible.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And there are things that the euphonium does in brass band as a role, okay. Here's here's where we're gonna where we're really gonna get into the thick of things. Cool. When the euphonium plays in brass band, it is providing a different role, very multifaceted, than the euphonium does in concert band. I feel like that's a gimme. We can both agree with that, right? Yes. Now, what are those differences? If you Put the same player in both ensembles, the same player, not the same music or the same composer. We're talking about the same human in both of those ensembles behind the same instrument. Mm -hmm. With a part that is suited for the concert band, with a part that is suited for the brass band what are the differences going to be sonically and what are they going to contribute sonically to those different ensembles? The euphonium and brass band is a very wide, massive soloistic sound that is huge. It goes
0: out for days. Mm -hmm. Why? Because all the... the, Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, it strikes me as... Um, You need more width in order to uh, power through an ensemble of uh, technically louder volume because you have primarily brass instruments instead of brass and winds.
1: Okay. You need a direction to take the sound. Yeah. Sure. Moreover, they also play very color-changing There's a lot of colors to a brass band. Remember, a brass band is all brass instruments. Yeah. So they provide all of the color changes on one type of tone production. Mutes, mutes are easy. Mutes are a gimme.
0: Yeah.
1: Volume, that's a color change. Mm -hmm. But then we have types of articulation
0: and vibrato no vibrato asking for more edge or less edge getting very very into the weeds with color changes
1: and so in the concert band when you are playing chameleon you have to provide a solid while playing chameleon you have to provide the only way you play chameleon is by matching style Mm -hmm. not by changing tone quality. Mm -hmm. You have to provide a fantastic singing, rich resonant sound. You cannot mess with the tone quality of the euphonium in concert band. You can, and you must in a brass band. You must not in a concert band. Let us play some examples. Are you ready for this? Always. So here we go. Share screen. Uh, share sound. Well, it says optimize for video clip. It's not letting me do that. It might be your hosting. Um, I'll see what uh, I do. David Childs. Um, we're going to play a soloistic sound. Close. What's the name of the second CD? Um. Um, symf- what's the sym- It's like he plays the symphony orchestra, the second one. Oh, I'm not sure. Okay,
0: I was looking to see if I could change the audio settings. Symphonic
1: euphonium 2. Oh, don't worry about it. Okay, oh, it's the uh, what's the CD it's called? Then the track listing on it. He does. Oh, I can't figure it out. What's that C D? You remember what that C D uh
0: the tunes on there? And Symphonic um me he does I know he does Be. he does uh No, this uh, is Symphonic too. Oh okay.
1: I can't type to save my life. Symphonic, euphonium, too. Here we go. Oh, I have Spotify. Here we go. Okay. Okay, here we go. Oh, I have it. It's not going to let me play it. It's Paul Maylor. Let's see if I can. Maybe YouTube. I
2: wonder who this is.
1: This. oh i can't find it okay here's the point of i don't know this concerto it's really good
0: sweet yeah to
1: um what you're gonna find is that david child's changes his sound very frequently because he's euphonium solos and grew up in the brass band culture and it's beautiful yeah. it's incredible it's fantastic and the other example would be Dr. Bowman or Brian Bowman playing his uh, sol- solos and he has a very, very consistent sound with a really, yes. really rich articulation, constant, yeah. which is something that he grew up doing in mm-hmm. the euphonium with the concert band. So there you go.
0: That's fascinating. Oh. Do you think it behooves, uh, the modern euphonium player to be able to do both of those things. No,
1: uh, I think it's impossible to do both well. Fascinating. Why? Um, I've not heard anybody accomplish both of them well. That's why interesting and why? Because of the different types of techniques and tone qualities in the ear training. the It's the ear. It's the ear. What does the ear want to hear? So it's really difficult to dissect worlds from one another. Um, Phil Smith sounds like Phil Smith sounds like Phil Smith. Whether he's playing in front of an orchestra, in an orchestra, in front of a brass band or soloing, he just did. Mm-hmm. And he played in a lot of different worlds. He played with brass band. He would solo with brass band. He grew up in the Salvation Army, playing in brass band culture. Um, that would be a that would be a that would be a person that I could point to that played in each one of those styles, maintaining that incredible sound. So that's why I think the answer is no. Which is a wild thing to say out loud. I think it's not possible. Well, I think, I think you do one thing and you, you do it well, you know, and I don't think you do one thing necessarily. It doesn't turn out to be one thing. Mm-hmm. It's just the way the people around you interact with you and the way they play around you
2: yeah.
1: makes, makes, make those sounds. So I, um, me, for instance, the way I play has lent itself to lent itself to playing an orchestra more often. So mm-hmm. I've played with, I play with New York Philharmonic. I play with the That's Cincinnati awesome. Symphony. I play with Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. I play with Baltimore. I've played with National. Uh, with the tone quality that I like and create, not necessarily on euphonium, but also bass trumpet and trombone. I've played yeah. trombone in a lot of these orchestras.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's awesome.
1: The uh, the reverse of that is a very soloistic sound, making soloistic choices. You can play in brass quartet, brass band. Mm-hmm. You can play solo repertoire. I just had a conversation with somebody, um, Glenn Van Loy, about approaching an orchestral sound. And he talked about the difficulty of it, and not even wanting to hear the recording that he made with the orchestra playing Planets because it was such a
0: departure from what he was used to. Whoa. So what do you do differently to approach a more orchestral sound?
1: I think I have to do less. is what I'm saying. I
0: think I have to do oh, less. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's really fascinating. I, um, I took your advice from Midwest and I've had a few lessons with Dave Federley, um, really? since January. Great. Yes. And that was the advice he gave me too, was that I needed to do less. And if I wanted to get more out of my horn, I probably needed to slow down my air. It's fascinating. It's been a wild journey. He's a smart guy. (laughs) He is. is. Um, I had a wonderful time. Uh, He's a very generous man. Uh, And one of the things I've been finding is um, it's been really interesting taking that approach and coming back to the kind of experiment or well, not kind of experimental, the super experimental ensemble I play in right now. Um, cause the, I play in the improvisers exchange ensemble here at Illinois and our instrumentation this semester is euphonium, piano, Oud, Portuguese guitar, penny whistle, Burembau. Um, what am I missing? Uh, a couple of French horns and uh, chungu, which is this Korean folk drum. It's a very eclectic group. And one of the things I find is that like a, the euphonium timbre is so vibrant. I really have to be picky about when I choose to kind of take over the texture. And it's not very difficult to do that. And I wind up utilizing a lot of wacky extended techniques a lot in order to kind of fit into whatever is going on.
1: Great. Yeah, we play a really, really resonant
0: instrument. Yeah. What can you do? (laughs) Uh, Find a way to make it work. (laughs) That's what you can do. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. It's been kind of cool. Yeah, I've had to... um, I don't know if... It's probably not accurate to say I developed some of these extended techniques, but I had a couple interesting ones I thought I'd uh, run past you. Um, And some of these I think are a little weird. I actually did some digging for... um, in outlining some of the rep that I kind of I thought we could get into if you wanted to today. Uh, I tried to line item a few pieces for uh, concerti solos and excerpts that I thought uh, exemplified um, an exceptional use of euphonium. Sure, go ahead. So um, for uh, for concerti, the ones I picked um, were. The obvious pair of choices in the Cosma and the LRB concerto. Um, We talked about the Cosma already. I think LRB is a really great case too, because, um, it's got, I mean, the first movement is kind of showcasing the contrast between the technique and the lyricism, uh, the second movement is, I mean, all over the place uses mute a lot. The third movement is downright gorgeous. Maybe one of the best songs ever written for the instrument. Um, and then the last movement, I actually had, uh, some beef with there's some extended technique in it, but I don't know that it's approached very well. Um, in the fourth movement, there are a number of times where, um, he takes the euphonium into like the middle low register and asks for like four beats of multiphonics out of nowhere at a pretty rapid pace. And I just don't know that that's very practical again. the piece is exceptional. I just don't know that that's a great use of multiphonics on the instrument. Sure. Um,
1: I would agree with that. And I would point composers more towards the Jan Bach concert variations. Yes. Uh, I think it's extremely difficult to approach. It's very, 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 very challenging. And as a matter of fact, That is a very good example of arpeggiation, and I – well, we're recording here, but I would say I would like to hear a clean version of that Mm -hmm.
0: played, of those measures. Do you know Brian Meichner's recording? Yeah, it's amazing. It's my favorite. He does I think I think Brian is one of the most underrated players of the horn
1: <laughs> he's a great player great great player great guy great player good dude
0: mm-hmm.
1: um fa- fantastic euphonium player it's a he, he did a great job with that oh, I haven't heard it in many years but I, I should check that out again um but yeah you're right that is an extraordinarily difficult slash maybe impossible slash one percent of one, one, one tenth of people are going to play that cleanly and that's mm-hmm. as intended um now the jan bach concert variations every single part of that is approachable all nice. of the stick all of the extended technique in that piece even for uh differences in genders or voice voice qualities it's still possible yeah. uh the 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 uh multiphonics in that piece the valve flips that he calls them or the half valving um he did a great job with euphonium extended technique that is that is the piece that i point people towards if they're wanting to write Mm -hmm. extended euphonium technique is the concert variations
0: yeah and uh i find blue lake fantasies isn't a bad choice either so, um, so good yeah yeah i, I mean blue like fantasies i think is a little more on i, I guess less adventurous with some of the extended techniques. Well, but it's it also has
1: yeah it also has fourths and yeah. and very difficult things to sing. It,
0: yeah and and the mute writing i think is really interesting how he contrasts the colors there mm-hmm. i mean it's also unaccompanied so um you really get to explore the subtleties of the differences which i think is really cool um mm-hmm. uh is the the chart blue gleam of arctic hysteria a piece for euphonium that you know
1: i know about it i've never played it before
0: i've, I've never played it before either it. i've i took mm-hmm. a couple listens to it last week and mm-hmm. and i think as far as adventurous euphonium repertoire that mm-hmm. definitely qualifies mm-hmm. um i on on the concerti list i had um link on on here, because I think it's really interesting to explore that level of range, that level of the level of technique that's required for any of the movements of that concerto, let alone the entire thing. But the thing I find that it does best is how it pairs with the orchestra. Uh, it, for me, that's it's the best way to cast the phony as a soloist with an orchestra. It's so beautiful.
1: It's a it's a very good concerto uh the style of writing is very unique to the composer linkola mm-hmm. i will say a lot of the high range writing is a little less effective it's a little pedantic like it it does high range it does high range a lot yeah and i don't necessarily recommend that for anyone my students i don't recommend playing the linkola euphonium concerto it's it's too difficult for a student yeah It's a very difficult piece. The Cosma, I do recommend.
0: Yeah, Cosma Cosma gets up to like flat.
1: If you have a very talented talented euphoniumist, Mm -hmm. the Cosma is a workable piece of music. Yeah. Same thing with the symphonic variants. Mm -hmm. And mind you, these pieces go just as high and just as low, but they don't sit on things like that, which make it, Outrageous. Which you... Kevin the Kevin Day Euphonium Concerto is also a piece that I don't recommend for students. Yeah, know, that was and I've seen a lot of people trying to play it. It's it's too hard for students. It's a very yeah. good piece of music. I actually really enjoy playing it, which is why I'm working it up. Yeah.
0: But it's that was too... the next one on my list. Yeah. Um, as far as the repertoire, because I think I think composers could learn a lot from studying Kevin's concerto, even if they it, it as long as they went into it with the grain of salt of that, some of the ranges out a little out of this world for um it's not, players it's not at even, the collegiate level.
1: It's not even really the range, it's the the uh, technical capabilities or the, the, the prowess that one needs to be able to play this piece. It's mm-hmm. over there. This piece of music requires a non there's the euphonium does not sound best doing this. The euphonium sounds best playing the Boccolari. Mm-hmm. The euphonium sounds best playing Napoli. The euphonium sounds best doing uh, the fan- original fantasy. The euphonium sounds best playing Endearing Young Charms, Old Lang Syne. And I'm not talking about easy pieces of music. Yeah. These all, all of these things to be accomplished at a really, really high level have to be played melodically and beautifully. This piece of music is really fantastic. Loads of fun, loads of fun for the performer and loads of fun for the audience. But it takes an extreme amount of energy and an extreme amount of dexterity that seasoned players have a difficulty with. You know, it's a great, another incredible a really, really well-written concerto is the Tom DeVoren concerto that he wrote for me recently. Um, that was premiered and commissioned in 2021. That is a fantastic, melodic, approachable euphonium concerto that I would recommend for um, undergraduate euphonium players and master's level. I would recommend it for a doctorate euphonium recital. Fantastic mm. writing. This I wouldn't even recommend this to a doctoral student unless I fully trusted their capabilities. It's Mm. so hard. Yeah. Is it rewarding? Yes. Is it a good piece of music? Yes. Is it approachable for a regular euphonium player? No. It is an extreme piece of music.
0: Would you say that the Barfield is similar?
1: Another extreme piece of music in terms of range and um, uh, playability. Yeah. Uh, I've recently heard that play. Well, I think we both heard that played by Brandon. Yeah. And I think it takes another small amount of people to play those things. Yeah. There are there are a small amount of people that will be able to play the day concerto mm-hmm. to a to a degree of enjoyability. I'm not I'm not blowing smoke up my own ass here. I'm just yeah. saying it's an extremely difficult piece that I practice yeah. very diligently. And I am a gamefully employed euphonium player. Uh, it takes me forever to work this thing up. Yeah, the Tom DeVoren concerto, it's difficult. It's challenging. It requires practice, but it's also approachable and musical and tuneful, and people will enjoy working on it. And mm-hmm. it's for a larger populace of euphonium players. But yes, it's so difficult. Too. Same thing so with too. same thing with the the Every single one of the Spark concertos and um uh sl- slow, fast songs that he has. Yeah. The, mimes
0: and the Spark hit. piece that I think has started to fly under the radar and is extraordinarily underrated is the Fantasy for Ian Craddock. Oh, well, I don't even I th- know it. You don't? Oh, dude, you got to look up this piece. It's awesome. And it's like the highest note in it, it's like a C. There you go. I think I played it as like a pretty good high school player. Oh, really good. Well, at any rate, it was a first round piece for Falcone for a long time. It's, I think it's one you'd think, I I think it's one you'd have a lot of fun with. It's really cool.
1: Very cool. Well, um, to wrap this up, I think that there is a lot of, of good music written out there for the euphonium. Um, uh, my hesitancy comes in writing things or recommending things that are not idiomatic. Yes. Extremely melodic, extremely melodic, extremely. If I, if you held a gun to my head and say, name one piece for euphonium player that composers are going to use for the rest of time. And then anything else, I would literally say Boccolari and be done with it. Uh, It has range. It has technique. It has, articulation it has melodic playing if you that there you go. I would say look at that done and then, then we wouldn't be stuck with oh okay, these people always play high E flats or oh okay, these people only play uh, in the pedal register.
0: So catamart kind of you know,
1: all comes to mind too well I mean a solo piece oh
0: for sure in yeah, terms I, I would...
1: of in terms of a band music yeah that's not bad at all band yeah. a band composition takata martial would be right up there if not my favorite mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons yeah. that we have that on the first round of the marine band audition yeah i, I mean practically but... religiously you know
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i was talking with um vince kenny around this time last year and one of the things he said to me was uh, if you if every euphonium player could play Tacata Martial perfectly and the opening, the holes the for Sweet knee flat perfectly, we probably wouldn't have a lot of worries <laughs> or all the worries because <laughs> it would be open season at auditions.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's very, that's very astute. I mean, the euphonium, that's, those are, holes first is hard. Yes. And Takata Martial is hard and people just don't realize it. It doesn't yeah. look hard at all. Neither one the, of those pieces look hard I, at all.
0: I think the whole suites get taken for granted because they're so approachable to a younger ensemble, right. ubiquitous, and so, yeah. And so everybody thinks, like, oh, it's just Holst one and two. We played uh, the first Suite in E flat for Steve Peterson's last concert, he retired at the end of last year. Um, okay, a fun show opened with Kevin Day's Dancing Fire, then we played Holst for Suite in E flat, then Maslanka Four, then A Mysterium. Tough show,
2: <laughs> okay, but.
0: The irony is that I think we spent the most rehearsal time on the Holst.
1: Yeah. I don't Which think it's really ironic kinda, at all.
0: It, it, yeah. it was surprising to me. But getting... The, some getting The, a, the simplest yeah.
1: music is the hardest music,
0: man. Yeah.
1: Simplest music is the hardest music. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I got
0: to let you awesome. go. I got to get moving. For sure. Hiram, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Yeah, no I, problem. I can't tell you how I much I appreciate this, is this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, it's a pleasure to pick your brain. Um, if folks want to follow you somewhere, where's the best?
1: Oh, Instagram. Cool. Awesome, awesome. Hiram HiramD is one at gmail.com.
0: Oh, no, wait, wait. HiramD is one. HiramD is one. That's it. And, of course, on tour with the Marine Band. Um, When are you in Oregon? Yeah. I'm going to Oregon the next
1: couple of weeks. That's awesome. Uh, not this week, but I'll be in Oregon from February 27th through March 10th, and I'm premiering the Dennis Inas euphonium concerto on March 10th, and it's going to be spectacular. It's a Cuban rhythm. It's, it's going to be awesome. spectacular. And then that's I'm really also exciting. doing I'm also doing the day concerto on Sunday, one one week from today, that's with cool. the Marine Band, which is just I cannot believe that, I get to that, play. Yeah, a man, that's
0: got to be exhilarating. <laughs>
1: I'm ex- extremely excited. And then I have the Tom DeVore concerto that I'm doing the piano reduction of at Rutgers University. And then um, I am trying to record a CD. So we'll see
0: what Whoa, happens. Oh, yeah. that'll be incredible. Yeah, yeah, please keep me in the loop about that. I can't wait. Sure. Awesome, awesome, boss. All right, man. Thanks Take so much. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Musical Trek Artista, the podcast. You can find us online at mcgowanmusic.com or listen on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit us at Andrew McGowan on YouTube or Music McGowan on Instagram.